if the currency's jacked, like, can you really do value investing? We're in a global race to debase. Before COVID happened, everybody was running around. And I mean, everybody. And they're like, well, inflation's like 1% and it's probably going to go negative. All the MMTers are coming out of the woodwork. 10-year treasuries at a half a percent. The numbers were insane. And I just wasn't having it. Like, <laughs> you can go back into my feed at, at this period in time, two, three years ago. And like every tweet I put out, it was like, how do you measure inflation? How do you figure out discount rates? Because I hate to tell you, a half a percent for risk, for risk-free rates, is just a lie. This was like the basis for why I, I think I, I became so hardcore into Bitcoin because I'm saying the money is so broke and they just kept doing more and more QE. They kept saying, where's the inflation? You know, maybe we should do more of this stuff. Well, they finally got it. And now I don't know that they can put the genie back in the bottle. Because Welcome back to the Fix the Money, Fix the World podcast. Again, if you are new here, my name is Luke and we talk about all things macroeconomics, geopolitics, Bitcoin, investing, finance, and my personal favorite, clown world. And today I'm bringing you an interview that I recently conducted with the one and the only Preston Pish. For anyone who has been living under a rock and doesn't know who Preston is, uh, Preston's proof of work really does speak for itself. He has nearly half a million followers on Twitter and he is the founder of the most successful finance and investing podcast in the space, The Investors Podcast Network. That puppy's got over 100 million downloads. So again, massive thank you to Preston for everything he does. Today's episode, we're gonna actually be talking about value investing. We're gonna be talking about why the money is broken. We're gonna be talking about the importance of taking custody of your Bitcoin and the mining revolution that Bitcoin is going to incentivize, as well as the path we believe Bitcoin will take to hyper-Bitcoinization. This one is a jam-packed episode. Preston gave us over an hour and a half of his time, so I've split this puppy up into two parts. Part one will be posted over here on the Bitcoin Made Simple YouTube channel, and part two will be posted over on the Coinbeast uh, YouTube channel. That is obviously going to be a new YouTube channel that I have just started and I am building out for the Bitcoin-only educational company that I have been working for for the past 12 months. That is Coinbeast. So make sure you head on over there and subscribe to that channel if you want to stay up to date with all of the interviews I will be conducting. Um, I am actually going to be um, transitioning more to doing less and less writing and more and more content here on YouTube. So if you enjoy that, uh, let me know down in the comments who you want me to interview next or what you want us to cover either here or on the Coinbase channel. Uh, without further ado, really hope you enjoy this episode with Preston. Okay, welcome back to the Fix the Money, Fix the World podcast. Today, I am sitting down with a man who needs absolutely no introduction. Preston Pish, how are you doing today, my friend? Hey, how are you doing? This I'm is doing awesome. great. We're, we're, we're talking again a couple of weeks later. Yeah, yeah. I had the pleasure of appearing on your show a couple of weeks ago and I uh, yeah. managed to get you on uh, my little podcast here. So thank you so much for coming. I'm really looking forward to this one. My pleasure. I enjoyed our chat last time. Yeah, it was good fun. That was great fun. Um, I had an absolute ball. I've obviously been a listener of TIP for around four years now. So uh, <laughs> it was a little bit of a pleasure to get on your pod. And maybe that gives us a good place to jump into this one. Yeah, uh, Preston, could you tell us a little bit about TIP and um, how maybe that led you to finding Bitcoin? Yeah, you know, it started off just uh, me just having a fascination with value investing and uh, really just trying to teach myself how it all works and really kind of like 
you know, one of the first things you learn when you start studying Buffett is that he's always talking about intrinsic value, intrinsic value. And it was just like, well, how do I calculate this? How do I do this intrinsic value stuff where I'm figuring out the value of a business? And so I kind of uh, went on this and no one had ever taught me. I was just, I just read a bunch of books, uh, read anything I could find online on, on how he goes about finding the intrinsic value of a business. And um, as I was going on this kind of journey, I just, I figured there was a bunch of other people out there that were like me that were trying to understand it because I remember reading some book, it, it wasn't a real advanced book, but in the book, it was like, yeah, Buffett really to the way he calculates intrinsic value is quite difficult where he's actually going in and he's looking at the 10 year treasury and he's, he's looking at the yields compared to the bond market and then comparing that back to the equity markets. And I remember reading that, and this was a long time ago, but I remember reading that and thinking, what in the world is this person even talking about in this book? And then they didn't show you how any of that, they just said that that's how he really does do it. And then this book was just like talking about PE ratios and like really simple, like valuation tools. And so like as an engineer, uh, you know, that, that, uh, likes mathematics, I was just like, okay, so I don't want to know any of this garbage. I want to know like, how does this dude do this? And so I just tried to get my hands on everything I could. And so long story short, I ended up building out a website. Uh, the website was called Buffett's books. It's, it's still up, it's still there. All the videos I made. What year was that prison? Do you remember? Um, Hmm. I would guess 2012 is when I built the website, something like that, like a decade ago. Yeah. Um, and um, the whole intent of the website was really to kind of walk the person through literally knowing nothing about financial valuation for stocks, bonds, preferred stock even. Um, and then just literally walking, holding their hand and walking them down that path for them to be able to do discount cash flow analysis, basically an IRR calculation where you're figuring out the yield that you think the future cash flows will generate. And then comparing those yields to what you could get as a quote unquote risk-free rate in the, in the bond markets. And I use those air quotes now because I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin space are well aware of my opinions on risk-free rates and, and how much of a disaster that whole space is. But uh, that's where I got my start and um, really kind of, I, I literally wrote the code. I was writing HTML, CSS, like it wasn't even a WordPress site. I was literally writing the files, coding them out, uh, recording the videos. Like I was a one-man show doing this Buffett's books. And so um, I stood up a forum on the site and it wasn't long after I had the forum on the site that um, Stig Broderson shows up. And I mean, he's just, he's writing these whoppers in the... Uh, in the forum, just doing like these deep analytical uh, valuations on like the energy. I remember specifically the energy sector. I mean, he was writing like 10 page uh, valuation reports on like ExxonMobil or whatever. And I was like, who the heck is this guy? This is amazing. This is all like right there in the forum. And then there was people, it wasn't a large forum. It was probably only, I don't know, 400, 500 people on this forum that I built. And, um, so Stig and I had a lot of interactions, a lot of back and forth. 
And then uh, we were out at a Berkshire shareholders meeting and I flew back with this guy. His name's Hari Ramachandra. He still comes on our podcast from time to time in like these mastermind discussions. And uh, he told me about podcasting. I didn't even know what it was. I was on the plane ride coming, coming home. And he's like, do you ever hear this podcasting stuff? I was like, not really. I mean, I've heard of a podcast, but I've never listened to one. And he's like, listen to this guy. His name's Pat Flynn. He, he does uh, like passive investing. He's like, it's really quite interesting. And Hari worked at uh, LinkedIn at the time. And so I was like, all right. So I, I listened to this thing and you got to remember, I just finished doing like all these YouTube videos and uh, I listened to this and I was like, this is incredible. Like I don't have to edit or do like any video because like, that, that was the thing when I built this course, I would record like my voiceover and then I'd go back and like all the time was spent like animating video to the audio to graphically show people what I was saying and like how, what free cash flows look like. I had to graphically show that so that it, it was more understandable. But then I listened to this podcast and I'm like, yo, this guy doesn't have to do any video. Like he's just recording a conversation and just like uploading it into a server and just blasting out to the world. And I was like, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. Like, I would love to do this and I would love to like interview people. And when I was looking at it, like the barrier to entry was literally nothing. Like, there's, there's no barrier to entry to any of this stuff. Like if you have a computer and you, you know, pay, a, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks a month for a hosting, the, the audio files, like it's just too easy. So that was kind of the, so I wanted, to, I wanted to do it with another person because I thought it would be important to have like a back and forth. And uh, so I reached out to Stig, who was posting these amazing uh, threads on, on the forum that I stood up. And his immediate reply back to me is like, you know, Preston, English is my second language. I don't really think anybody would really want to listen to me. And I, I just laughed. I said, you know what? Half the world doesn't even speak English. And like, they might actually... Uh, and I don't know what the stat is. I'm sure it's way different than what I just said. But um, I said, I think a lot of people would actually like to hear the accent and maybe actually uh, align with the accent. I said, screw that. Like your, your comments are just gold. Like you're, you're deeply analytical. You really understand this stuff. I think you're perfect. Let's do it. He's like, all right, if you think so. <laughs> and, and that was like literally the foundation and the impetus of the, of the show. That was the birth of the investors. Uh, okay. yep. Yeah. And now congratulations. I saw recently you guys have got a hundred million downloads. So um, hard to I'm, believe. <laughs> I'm, no, don't, don't say that for a second. You guys are doing great work and I highly recommend everyone definitely go and check that out. Um, so the investors podcast network came into it. Uh, was that 2013 or 2014? Did you say? Yeah, it's around that time frame when we stood up the podcast. And when did Bitcoin fall into that journey? When did you stumble upon Bitcoin? 2015. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We, uh, we, I don't know what episode number it would be. I would guess it'd be like definitely the top 40, uh, first 40 shows we did, maybe even the top 20 shows that we did. Um, we had heard about it. Um, I was really uh, having my, at this moment in time when we had heard about it, I was having my, uh, we read a book by Tony, believe it or not, Tony Robbins wrote this book, Money Master the Game. And in the book, he just kept talking about Ray Dalio, Ray Dalio, uh, 
And he was talking about how gold was in Ray Dalio's portfolio and how Ray Dalio was running such a massive hedge fund. And he was the best investor on the planet. Like actually, you know, Tony was kind of suggesting in the book that Ray was a better investor than, than Buffett. And this just kind of flipped my worldview completely upside down. Mm -hmm. I was like, what? <laughs> Who is this guy? And let me really read everything I can get my hands on about him. And the more I read, I came across, this is, this is interesting. I came across this guide that was literally called, I think, Principles mm -hmm. um, on the internet, on the Bridgewater website back in late 2014, 2015. This is before he wrote any of his books. And it was like a 220 page PDF that I pulled off of the Bridgewater website. And I distinctly remember reading the, in, and his video, uh, he had his video, the, the economic machine that was out back in 2015. Mm -hmm. So I watched this video and after I watched this video and I kind of combined it with some of the stuff that I read in money mastered the game, it literally took a lot of my thinking on value investing and just really flipped it on its head and was like, hold on a second. Like if the currency's jacked, like, can you really do value investing the way that, you know, Buffett's doing it, doing these IRR calculations, or if you're constantly comparing that back to these, these treasury yields, like if the, if the currency's being manipulated and jacked with, like, how can I actually trust these calculations? Like the whole thing has a systematic error. Hmm. And, um, so long story short, I find this PDF on the Bridgewater website in late 2014, uh, early 2015. And I read through this thing and in it, Ray is talking, uh, it, there was some paragraph in there where he's talking about like loaves of bread versus gold as, as like a unit. Mm -hmm. and, he's and he's like showing how like commodity prices are, are dependent on like a sound money or a sound currency. And, uh, I must have reread this, this, this PDF. I don't know how many times I literally went to like the local, uh, it's like a FedEx or whatever, where they print, print them off and put them in those binders. I printed the thing off. I have the thing tabbed out. It's, it's over there on the bookshelf <laughs> somewhere. And, uh, I just could not stop thinking about it. And so then this is when Bitcoin was being talked about. It had just gone through, like it had gone to a thousand. The Mount Gox was in the news. Um, and it was early second quarter, 2015 or something like that. We covered it on the show. And after I covered it on the show and I kind of matched it with everything I had just previously read, probably six months earlier or whatever from Ray Dalio, I was like, this could actually solve and, and you got to remember, I was chewing on this idea that the 2008, 2009 thing was never solved. Mm. Like it was never solved as far as the QE to me was just such a um, disaster. Like I just knew fundamentally nothing was being solved from the 2008, 2009 crisis by doing QE by further manipulation. I just knew that like deep down inside, like that was not solving anything. And so when I saw this and I was like, oh my God, this is like gold. And this is, this would like literally step in and provide like a decentralized solution where nobody has to actually agree. In fact, I suspected nobody could come to an agreement by going back on a gold standard. And I was looking at Bitcoin here and I'm like, 
let's do a show on this. Like, let's study this because maybe this is the solution to this whole debacle and disaster. And the more that I read, the more I just became more and more convinced. Now, people can go back and listen to the very first conversation I had in 2015 about it. And I think people will tell, can tell that I'm skeptical, but I, at the end of the show, I, I say, yeah, I bought this. I, <laughs> I, I like it. I like the asymmetry of it. And back then I, I mean, Bitcoin's market cap couldn't have been more than like, it was I mean, a couple of hundred dollars a pop, surely. It was $200. Yeah. My first buy was at 220, $220. And, um, I, I don't know what the market cap was, but I would guess it was like 5 billion or a little bit less or somewhere in that range. Um, and you know, my rationale was, Hey, I think this thing could go to a trillion as far as upside goes. Um, and you know, when you're looking at those numbers, let's just say it was 5 billion. I'd have to go back and look what the actual market cap was, but I know the, the individual price was 220. And I was like, this thing has a lot of room to go. <laughs> and I remember back then looking at like the 10,000 price and it was just like, could you imagine if this went to like 10,000 a coin? Like back then it was just like, that was unimaginable, mm. but based on like a trillion market cap, I knew that the, those numbers were in the cards. Um, and really the analysis didn't go much further than that. Like, you know, I, I kept studying it cause there's, it's an endless rabbit hole. It never ends. Mm. Like it literally never ends. I mean, I'm here, I am over a hundred shows deep, just covering Bitcoin. That's the, you're still learning like every day. So I know that's a really long, really long answer. But that's <laughs> <a good> story. <laughs> hey, that's what we're doing a podcast for. Podcast is all about long form answers. And you brought up lots of really, really interesting points there that I would uh, love to pull apart, um, especially yeah. the one where you mentioned uh, the money is broken. I, I think yeah. a lot of people in traditional investing today, they don't realize that the money is broken. And I, I think it's more broken than it ever has been in 5,000 mm -hmm. years of monetary history. Like we've never seen a globally interconnected fiat currency system come towards what I believe and what I, I think you may believe is its inevitable conclusion. So maybe that would be a good place to kind of go next, Preston. We can kind of talk about yeah. where we are in the big picture of this um, economic cycle. You mentioned Dalio. Um, obviously, he's written at length about the 80-year long-term debt cycle. Um, and actually, I wouldn't mind sharing my screen quickly and showing the viewers a little chart from one of your threads, uh, tweet threads that is. Now I just want to quickly interrupt today's episode to let you guys know about our Bitcoin only sponsors who we think can help take your game to the next level. So starting out with Amber, they are a Bitcoin only exchange who have just rolled out to 62 countries around the world, making us the fastest growing Bitcoin exchange out there. And to celebrate, they are giving all of you guys $10 of free Bitcoin. If you sign up with Amber today, all you need to do is press the link in the description of today's video. It's going to take you to a landing page that looks something like this. If it asks you for a promo code, promo code is Luke and then followed by the number one, Luke one. Very easy to remember. Highly recommend you check out Amber. They're a great company. And of course, Bitcoin only, the Celsius debacle followed by uh, BlockFi and the recent FTX debacle should show you guys that you should not be trusting any shitcoin casinos, but you shouldn't even be trusting a Bitcoin only exchange like Amber. You shouldn't trust any exchange. That is the beautiful thing about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is about taking self-responsibility and not trusting anyone. That is why I'm also very happy to be sponsored by another 
Bitcoin only company and they produce something called a Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. This is a hardware wallet that lets you take custody of your Bitcoin in the easy and simple way. Um, obviously guys, this is the cheapest um, hardware wallet on the market um, and it is the easiest hardware wallet to use. I have used them all. I've used ledgers, trezors, cold cards. I've played around with it all and I couldn't recommend the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet anymore. This is what they look like. They're a great little device and they get even 5% cheaper if you use a promo code Bitcoin made simple, no spaces, Bitcoin made simple. Highly recommend you check them out. And while we're talking about sponsors, if you want some of the best Bitcoin clothing in the space, I highly recommend you guys check out a company called Hodling Apparel, okay? They make some amazing t-shirts, hoodies, sweaters, hats, you name it, they've got it. Hodling Apparel is a great company and they're giving all of my listeners today 20% off every purchase they make at the Hodling Apparel store. Um, again, promo code for this one will just be uh, BMS20, so that just stands for Bitcoin Made Simple and then the number 20. Very easy to remember. Links for all the sponsors will be in the description of today's video. Of course, I'm not going to recommend uh, sponsors or uh, products that I don't use myself. They're all great products and they're Bitcoin only. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. So yeah, uh, with respect to this particular thread, what I was really getting at was this idea that I was just previously talking about, where is if the money, if the fiat currency is expanding, um, and I think this is a really important point. If you're looking at dollars, and let's just compare it to pounds, for example, if the dollar expands by 10% and the pound expands by 10%, those two currencies are going to both feel, for, for the people that are in both of those countries, they're going to feel like if you're, if you're referencing the, the buying power of one versus the other, it's going to feel like they literally didn't move at all because they were both, both debased at the same pace relative to each other. And so when you look at this, I've, I've often said that we're in a global race to debase. And what I'm really getting at with that is the countries are competing to debase their currencies in order to suck uh, demand into their domestic regions. And as, as a country does that, the other countries then want to debase their currency in order to uh, attract that international uh, expenditures or that, that international buying into their jurisdiction as well. And so if people are looking just at fiat currencies relative to other fiat currencies, what they're going to find is they fluctuate. They might fluctuate 10, 20% uh, annually, which would be considered large moves in, in the FX markets. Um, but if you look at it on a long enough time horizon, they, they look like they're all just kind of moving back and forth in sequence to each other. But what people fail to, to see is if you're looking at something fixed, like gold, Bitcoin, for sure. Um, and Bitcoin's a little bit of a misnomer because you have this large adoption rate that's also occurring simultaneously. And so that's what's really hard for people to wrap their heads around when they're trying to look at it almost like gold. But if you compare fiat currencies to gold, you'll see that and, and let me re, let me uh, just caveat the gold piece too, is if you have a substantial paper market that's distorting some of the prices, that can also miscue people as to how much debasement and printing is actually happening in these fiat markets, which I think is, is actually uh, the problem with gold. So um, when you're comparing it to 
uh, commodities that somewhat perform like they have a fixed supply. Let's call it like the oil market. And you see the prices over time continue to go up. Um, what's actually occurring is you're just put adding more monetary fiat units into the system. And, and the other thing that uh, Dalio is really great at kind of explaining um, is these fiat units aren't necessarily like the units that you're used to looking at in your pocket, like a dollar bill. There's a substantial amount of these fiat units that are credit-based, which can disappear as credit becomes impaired and blows up. And so when you're seeing these cycles and they look like the tides coming in and, and going out, what's causing that is the credit impairment and the credit expansion of these fiat units. But if you look at them on a really long time horizon, the, the credit units just keep, or I'm sorry, the, the monetary units, the fiat units just keep expanding and expanding. And so in this thread uh, that you have pulled up, what I'm doing is I'm showing that debasement through the M2 money supply. And so you can see uh, uh, this, that first chart is actually the, the NASDAQ, um, which it's off of some of these highs, but you can see the chart looks like it's going parabolic. Now, as you go down, I say, let's look at some of the other uh, markets. Go ahead and click on that next one there, Luke. Yeah. So this is the S&P 500 compared to I'm sorry, it's not the S&P 500. The, the top one there is the Indian stock market. Next one is, uh, I think it's the Russell 2000. Then you yeah. got the Japanese stock market. Then you have the Korean stock market. And you just go down across the world. But all these stock markets are in their local currency terms, mm. not brought back into dollar terms. So if you go down to the, I believe the next chart, I put them in dollar terms. Yep. So now all these stock markets are in dollar terms. And when you look at them in dollar terms, you'll notice real quickly that the Indian stock market is now underneath of the U.S. stock market or the Russell mm -hmm. 2000, uh, where before it was, it was aggressively outperforming it. But by putting everything in dollar terms, we can now look across the entire globe and see which stock markets have actually outperformed the other ones. Now, when we talk about the Cantillon effect, this should make sense that as the dollar is the most dominant currency... It's stock market because they're all getting first bite at the apple as those new monetary units are being added into the global economy. They get first bite at the apple and they should outperform. And so that's what you're seeing with this chart. Uh, go to the next one. So then the argument I make is, all right, well, what if the dollar itself, you know, now that we put all the, the stock markets into dollar terms, what if the dollar itself is actually also moving, right? So here's a chart of just the M2 money supply and how much it's grown over that same exact period of time that we just looked at for all the stock markets. So now let's take all of those stock markets, which are all in dollar terms, and then let's M2 adjust them uh, to account for the dollar itself that's moving. And what you get is this really interesting chart that, uh, call it half the world, hasn't even uh, been up uh, it, as, as a positive return since the bottom of the 2009 uh, stock market, global stock market crash. And you can see, and, and these numbers are way different because this thread I think is like a, a year old and the, most of these markets are down significantly. Mm. I know when you, when you combine all of them together and you put them all in dollar terms, yeah, go ahead and uh, yeah, go down to the very end. Uh, uh, it's the next, I think it's the next chart down. 
Yep, here you go. It look, looks like a bloodbath of a chart. It's it's a bloodbath of a chart. And this is from the bottom of the 2009 crisis until last year. It was only up, call it 7%. Collectively across the globe, the equity markets were only up 7%. Now they're, they're deeply negative from the bottom of the 2009 uh, chart if you combine all of them, put them in US dollar terms, and then M2 adjust them. So- what the whole reason I that I think this uh, you can go back to uh, just our videos, uh, Luke. The reason that I think that this is really important for people to wrap their head around because it really kind of demonstrates what I was getting with my first response, where um, I was saying, you know, value investing, uh, it should work if you're dealing with a sound currency and something that's not being debased at a breakneck pace. But if you're dealing with something that is being deeply debased, and, and we're experiencing this on a global level, this just isn't a, a US thing, this is a global phenomena. Um, what you find out real quickly is the discount rates that you think you're using are grossly misrepresented. And when you study financial valuation, there's a, key, a few key terms that, that are in the equation. So you're, you're calculating for the present value, right? Um, when, you're, when you're doing this and you're saying, you're using a discount rate to get it back to what you think the, the value is today. So the nice thing about the stock market, the public markets is you're constantly being quoted a price. You don't need to calculate the intrinsic value. The price is being, it, it's a given. You know, in, in engineering, um, you have knowns and you have, you have, you have knowns and then you have unknowns. You're never going to solve an equation when you have, you're never going to solve for the known, right? If it's given to you. <laughs> and what I find so interesting about uh, finance and what they teach in these MBA programs and economics is they make it seem like the price is an unknown when it's clearly in public markets, it's clearly known. Like you can look up Apple right now and you know what the price is. Like, you know, if you could, if you want to go out and buy a thousand shares, now you'll get a little bit of slippage if you're buying a lot. But for people that, you know, retail investors like myself, I can go there and I can look and I can say, for example, like, let's just say Apple is a hundred dollars a share. If I'm going to go to this equation to figure out what I think its value is, like, why would I not use the given? which is $100 uh, for the stock. So if I know the market price and I have an estimate of what I think their future free cash flows are, what I'm actually solving for is the discount rate or the yield that I would expect to get if those free cash flows come true, okay? And what you find in business schools is you're, you're making up the discount rate, you're making up the free cash flows, and then you're saying, this is what the price should be, which doesn't make any sense to me because you know what the given is. The given is the market price, right? It doesn't make any, why would you make the problem more difficult by acting like you have more unknowns than what you have? And so, uh, you know, I had a conversation with Bill Miller, uh, I don't know, five years ago or something. Mm -hmm. For people who don't know Bill Miller, he's, he's uh, you know, the former CIO of Lake Mason. He's managed like 60, $80 billion, just brilliant. And when I was talking to him about his valuation process, it was just like, oh yeah, if you, I use IRRs. I don't do it any other way. But you go to business school and they, there's like 
IRRs are really bad because if you have one year if, if, of the future cash flows that are negative, then the, the equation doesn't work because you'll get multiple solutions. So don't ever, it's like, that's not what practitioners do. <laughs> they don't do that at all. <laughs> practitioners are not going to solve for a variable that is already known because they're not dumb. <laughs> uh, so sorry to go off on a tangent with the valuation process, but why this is important, right? Is we're talking about solving for the discount rate. Okay. And when you're solving for the discount rate, um, if you don't know what your hurdle rate is, and when I say hurdle rate, I mean inflation. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what that is, then you're, you're going to be grossly misrepresenting what you think your IRR for a business is. So let me give you an example. Before COVID happened, everybody was running around. And I mean, everybody. And they're like, well, inflation's like 1%. And it's probably going to go negative. And there's like, the, like all the MMTers are coming out of the woodwork. And 10-year treasuries at a half a percent. Like the numbers were insane, right? And so people who were valuing the equity market back then would have looked at that and said, well, you know, if I can get 2% higher than the 10-year treasury at a half a percent, um, and the free cash flows are this, and, uh, you know, the company's trading on the open market for this, and I can get a discount rate or a yield of two and a half percent that kind of justifies to, to be appropriately priced because the 10 year treasury is at a half percent. And I just wasn't having it. Like <laughs> you can go back into my feed at, at this period in time, two, three years ago. And like every tweet I put out, it was like, how do you measure inflation? How do you figure out discount rates? Because I hate to tell you a half a percent for risk, for risk-free rates is just a lie. Hmm. It's just a lie. And so um, this was like the basis for why I, I think I, I became so hardcore into Bitcoin is because I'm saying the money is so broke. If people think that this is like the numbers as they're doing massive amounts of QE and what they were really doing with all of that is they're just obliterating supply chains. They're obliterating the, the amount of diversity that you have in business in order to, to conduct, uh, to have multiple vendors that you can go and, and resource supplies from. So all this QE that they did for decades on end, or well, since 2008, what it was really doing is it was, it was quote unquote, stabilizing the markets. It was pushing all these yields lower and people were thinking that that was a sign that things were healthy. When in the real economy, the diversity of business was just getting annihilated and you had total consolidation of enterprise into the hands of a few major companies. And it just kept compounding and they just kept doing more and more QE. And they kept saying, where's the inflation? You know, Maybe we should do more of this stuff. Well, they finally got it. And now I don't know that they can put the genie back in the bottle because, uh, you know, it, the reality is, is that inflation is actually based on businesses, a couple businesses now interacting. And I know, I'm sure you've heard me say on multiple shows, like the more complex the part is, the more reliance of all these subordinate su supply chains there are, which 
can increase time, can increase mm-hmm. cost, and can in- increase or make performance worse. <laughs> Those are your three pieces, <laughs> right? So, yeah. Sorry, I, these are really long responses. I don't know why I'm. I just keep droning on. But <laughs> I love it. A pet peeve with the uh, with the uh, valuation process. It's not very often you get to sit on the other side of the microphone. Um, which, <laughs> you've done hundreds of podcasts now, Preston. Absolutely go for it. I'm uh, learning a bunch here. Uh, but you keep you keep hitting on what I think is the 900-pound uh, elephant in the room. The money yeah. is broken. The yes. measuring stick is broken. And I think if you tell a lot of people that the stock market is actually down from 2008, mm-hmm. they'll look at you with the weirdest look on their face because they think, hang on a minute, my superannuation fund is up six, seven, eight hundred percent since two thousand eight. Yeah. What are you talking about, Preston? Um, yeah. So I think that's a really key point that anyone listening in um, should really kind of take home with them today. Okay, everything that you're measuring, whether it's stock market, the bond market, your four hundred one k, your superannuation, you're using the wrong measuring stick. You need to be using a measuring stick that's not changing. Um, and well, this point that you're making is really important. Mm. Because each person you talk to is going to have a different time print preference of like how they think about investing. So like me personally, I look in a very long lens, like very long lens. And a lot of that comes from, from my Buffett uh, indoctrination, I guess, is that he looks <laughs> at everything with a very long lens. Like if you buy something, think about owning it for the rest of your life. Like you a whole punch, you only get 20 punches in the thing. And that's, the number of investments you can have in your entire life was really kind of his advice. So I'm looking at it from that lens. You got people that are out there that might look, they might have a one day time horizon. They might have a three month time horizon. And what I find is a lot of the arguments that you will find in the investing space comes down to a difference in time preference between the two entities that are arguing. Sometimes people are like, well, I think Bitcoin's a great investment. And a person would be like, it is down like 70% in the last year. What are you talking about? Right? Because their time preference is three months from now. And they're saying there's still pain left uh, in the next three months. And maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But for a person with a really short time preference, they're looking at us and they're saying, these guys are idiots. (laughs) Right? Uh, but a person with a really long time horizon is looking at that, like a Michael Saylor, I would argue, mm-hmm. has a really long time uh, preference. And so he's looking, or I guess it's short time preference or whatever, but like <laughs> he's looking at it on a long, on a long duration uh, buy. And he's saying, I want to own this for 20, 30 years at a minimum. Um, I think he says that his entire life, mm-hmm. which I, th- I think that's a, that's a whole nother discussion. Uh, post hyper Bitcoinization, like when does a person start moving some of their their buying power into equities, assuming businesses are starting to redenominate their balance sheet and income statement in, in Bitcoin, blah blah blah, all that. That's a whole nother discussion. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, mean, I I think that's a really important thing for people to think about is who are you talking to and what is their time horizon of, of what they consider a normal investment. That's the biggest thing, I think. So obviously, Bitcoin's down 70, 80% in the past 12 to 18 months. I honestly don't know the exact number, but most people won't know. Bitcoin's like one of the best performing assets from the 2020 COVID crash. Bitcoin's up yeah. 400% today. It's sitting yes. at $16,000 a pop. So I think that's something that a lot of people certainly miss. 
So that's all we've got time for in part one of my discussion with Preston Pish. If you enjoyed it, feel free to slap a like on the video and subscribe to the channel so you're notified when the next interviews I conduct go live here on the Bitcoin Made Simple podcast channel. And, and if you want to watch part two of this discussion with Preston, I highly recommend you check that one out. Uh, part one, we were just getting fired up. Part two is an absolute banger. Link to it is going to be in the description. Um, again, check out Amber if you want $10 of free Bitcoin. Link to that is in the description down below. We are now live in over 62 countries all around the world. So we are planning to be one of the largest Bitcoin-only exchanges around the world. Guys, without further ado, that's all I've got time for you guys today. Check out part two of my discussion with Preston. Subscribe to the channel if you want to be notified when my next interviews drop. And without further ado, have a good day and keep stacking Bitcoin.